0: Ephesians chapter four. That's where we're going to jump into that uh, today. Uh, so just follow along with me in Ephesians. Uh, here we go. I therefore, a prisoner of of for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. And we'll stop right there. <clears throat> so today is kind of a turning point in the letter, uh, Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus. And so what we've had before this point is a lot of doctrine. And that's kind of the way Paul writes a lot of times, but sp- specifically to the church, church at Ephesus, uh, he wrote a lot about theology, uh, about how the theology should play out in a believer's life. And so my first question for you today to consider today is how does your theology play out in your life? How does your theology, the thing that you believe about God, how does it play out in your life today? Are you someone that has a theology that allows you to just live in the sin in which you live? To kind of just keep going and keep going and keep sinning and just kind of just do your religious thing where you show up from time to time on a Sunday to a church service and just kind of go through the motions. I did that for 30 years. It's miserable. Or does your theology have you live in secret where you don't want anybody to know that I'm a follower of Jesus? I mean, a Jesus is in my heart. You know, we've talked about that a couple of, years, a couple of weeks ago. Uh, but my, my theology and my religion and my following Jesus is just kind of my own personal relationship with Jesus, and I just keep it to myself. Or do you live in silence where you just never speak about it at all? If, if people wondered whether you were a Christian, they couldn't know it because you have a testimony about it because they don't ever talk about Jesus. Or do you live sent? Like we talk about here regularly, as people who follow Jesus should live. We, be, we are a people, not even should, but we are a people if you've been redeemed by the precious blood of Jesus. When we thank you, Jesus, for the blood of Christ, it causes us to be uh, sons and daughters that you just declared in your singing, and it causes us to live as a people sent with a message for the hope that others have in following Jesus. Paul writes this way on the regular in his New Testament letters. He writes, so the way he did in, 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 the, uh, in Ephesians, The first three chapters are really about doctrine, and then the next three chapters about how that doctrine plays out. So it's indicative, imperative. This is what God has done in our life, and now this is the way we should live in light of that. Indicative, this is what he has done. Imperative, now go and do because of what Jesus has done for you. Paul writes that way a lot. It's it's important not to skip those or invert those two or to miss the truth of the gospel. See, lots of preaching, lots of people who stand in pulpits will give us the imperative, right? The things that we're supposed to do. We'll give a list of things and how you should live, and this is how you should live, and this is what you should do, and they should us to death, right? But without the indicative about who God is and what Jesus has done for us, there's no power in that. There's no way to do it on our own. It becomes marching orders with no reason to have marching orders, It becomes live this way without any power to live the way we're called to live. And it becomes go without any gas. And that's a miserable way to live. One commentator said this shift in Paul's letter can be expressed in many ways, indicative to imperative, which is what I just said, doctrine to duty, creed to conduct, or exposition to exhortation. Those are different ways to look at that. So let's jump in and see what Paul has to say here. So uh, uh, chapter 4 opens with a therefore. And so what do we do when we see a therefore? We want to know what the therefore is there for, right? And so, again, just I've already talked about it. But it really goes back to the entire first three chapters of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. So when he gets to Ephesians 4, he's going, because of all these things that I've talked about previously, now I'm going to talk about some things that you should live in light of, because of those. So chapter four, verse one says this. um, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And so for somebody, for us to be called out of the world and into the body of Christ, honestly is the highest calling that any of us can have. But the God of the universe who spoke the world into existence, literally spoke it into existence, is someone who is calling us out of darkness. Calling us out of our sin, calling us to live differently, calling us out of this. The Greek word for church, he's calling us to be the church, and the Greek word for church uh, is ekklesia, which is made up of a prefix and a root. So I'm going to give you a little little Greek lesson. The prefix is ek, which means out of, and the root is the verb koleo, which means to call. And so the church of the New Testament is made up of those who are called out from the world. Okay. The church is made up of those people, us people who are called out from the world, called out from darkness, we're called out from damnation, we're called out from living in paganism, we're called to be members of the body of Christ. Now, Paul's not saying that people were called out because they were worthy to be called out. What did we just sing? Who is worthy? You just sang it. He is worthy, right? Jesus is worthy. We don't, we don't get called out to be a follower of Jesus because we're worthy. We're called out because he is worthy and he is calling us to himself. The grace in which we're called is simply that. grace. God's grace has called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. But after God calls us to be his children and in response, honestly, to that gift, that un, unspeakable gift, we should do everything within us, all that is within us, To live lives that are worthy of the calling to which we've been called. What motivates us and kind of stimulates our behavior in attempting to live worthy lives is the grace by which we've been saved. God's grace. It's the free gift of salvation. I don't know how many of you have grown up. I don't know what many of you think about Christianity. But the gift of God is is a gracious gift. He doesn't do it because you're good. He doesn't call you because you've got big qualities about you. He doesn't do it because you're big and strong. He doesn't do it because you can run fast. He doesn't do any of those things. He just calls you because he is gracious. He calls you to himself because he loves you. What a gracious thing for the God of the universe to do. In in this text, too, the Greek word for worthy is called axis, which has the idea of weight. It's where we get our meaning to be of equal weight. So think about this. For our lives to exist in some kind of understandable form, Paul says this, or as the text says, Paul urges this, is what he's saying, that you and I try to live our lives that is somewhat equal, somewhat uh, in the same manner and the way that which we were called. The way in which we were called we're called to live our lives in that same kind of way. He's, what he's saying is, Jesus has done so much for me that the rest of my life should be lived in a, in a response to that gracious call. He's given you hope. He's given you future. He's given you life. He's given you a relationship with him. And our calling is to live out in light of that very thing. Philippians chapter 3, verse 14 said, Paul said this, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call in Christ Jesus. He's just saying this is what it looks like to follow Jesus. I press on. I press on for the upward prize, the call, the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And I'm sure your logical question here is this. What does it mean to live a life worthy of our calling? What does it mean to live a life worthy of our calling? So in the church, many times people will hold up behavioral standards as what it means to follow Jesus. Who's been who's, who grew up in church where it was like, I know what to mind my, my P's and Q's in church? And usually that's what it means to just follow Jesus. Just fall in line, do what you're supposed to do, act a certain way. You know, don't don't back talk your mama. I mean, which you shouldn't anyway, but I mean that, that was really pious if you would do those kinds of things. I don't, I don't cuss or drink or chew or run around with girls that do. You know, Uh, that was kind of the way. That's kind of the way we're we're called to a lot of times. Think about behavior modification. That seemed to be what I understood Christianity to be for the majority of my life. Yep, still the majority of my life at this point, thirty years. Not over that tipping point yet. So that's what I understood Christianity to be, and for me, it was impossible because I like to run around with girls that drink and chew. No, I'm just kidding. Just kidding. Uh, The truth is that behavior modification is a cheap substitute. It's a cheap substitute. It's just trying to give some type of outward virtues to say, hey, look at me, I'm doing things right. That's a cheap substitute for what Christianity actually is. See, the scripture tells us uh, that there's a close relationship to the virtues of what it means to be a follower of Jesus and when, it te- when the scripture calls us and tells us that the spirit fills us. Remember we talked about this a couple of weeks ago that said the fruit of the spirit, you know what those are? What are they? Love, same with me, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control, right? Those are the, that's the fruit of the spirit. Those aren't fruits of the spirit. That's fruit, that is one fruit, one big, big, giant fruit of the spirit. He gives us all those things as a part of our life. And so these virtues, this fruit of the Spirit, these are really kind of intangible things, right? I mean, love is an intangible thing. Joy is somewhat intangible. I can't necessarily touch it, but I can see it. Patience, you can't really necessarily always see patience. Those are these things that are somewhat intangible. They're, They're difficult to measure is probably a better way to say that. And they're not nearly as as obvious as like these outward behavior modifications. But here's what's true. The fruit of the Holy Spirit represents the real presence of grace in a person's life. The fruit of the Holy Spirit represents real presence of grace in a person's life. Look, listen, church. Our world is looking for a people like this. Our world is looking for a people like this. If you don't live under a rock these days, then you've certainly seen all the the whole Russian invasion of Ukraine. We talked about that last week. Uh, We we prayed for uh, the people of of Ukraine and and we've asked God to intervene in that thing. And I hope that you're still continuing to pray and do that. What I've seen is, and watching the people of Ukraine, I've seen a people who are willing to stand up. I've seen a people that, through their fear and through their circumstances, have stood in the face of their Russian invaders. And we admire them. I do. To look at Volodymyr Bel- uh, Zelensky, close. To watch him and courageous leaders like him lead out that's something to, to want to emulate, something to want to follow. <clears throat> in that same way, the world around us is looking for something out of followers of Jesus. To see that same courageous things that we see in Kiev, the world is looking for a new people. See, we slumber through this life of shoulder to shoulder, walking along shoulder to shoulder, and, and we don't ever see or hear each other a lot of times because we're just on our own mission. Many times we don't even live with eye contact because we think we're having contact with people through our devices. I'll send them a text. We don't really have a lot of real conversations because it's easier to send an email or do a phone call or another Instagram post. I'll text them or I'll snap them or something. And then it's on to the next faceless endeavor that we have. Listen, church, our world, our cities, our communities, our neighbors, our families, your family. Listen, yes, your family, sir, ma'am, is looking for a new way to live. A third race. One that not only walks in unity. <clears throat> one who is filled, that is evidently filled with the Spirit of God. One that has inviting homes. One that has open arms. One that has welcoming hearts. I have a pastor friend of mine. His name is Jeremy Rose. He wrote a post this week. He actually came and spent a few days with me and my family this week. He wrote this this week. Here's what he said. He said, I've been with several friends and family at their time of death, and I've never met anyone at that point of their life who wished they were more chippy, more harsh, and angry at others. Nearly every time, they wished they had more time to repair the hearts they destroyed by being thus so. They wished they were more kind and sweet and patient and gracious. And he says, reverse engineer your deathbed moment. Live in light of that moment. We, uh, there was a there was a family that was part of our refuge family for a long time, a Jay and Sandra Blondis. And uh, they were here for a long time. And Jay, they moved uh, to East Tennessee to be with their family. And uh, Jay uh passed away just recently. They came back and did his funeral here at Refuge, and they wanted to do it here. They loved this church family. Uh he was an elder at another church before they came here. And he was just a gracious man, very kind, uh soft-spoken man. He and he and uh his his bride were uh just wonderful people. And there was somebody this week that sent some money to the church that wanted to for us to use it in missions. Said, Hey, I, I want you to use this money for missions in memory of Jay Blondis. Here's what she wrote about him. Dear church, please accept this meager love gift in memory of Jay Blondis for missions. I've known Sandra since her girls were small, and then, of course, then she met and married Jay. His service was remarkable. Such a witness of how a great Christian man can serve Jesus and love people. Hope this amount can help in some small way to further God's ministry of missions given in honor and love of Jesus' name. Sincerely, Carol Baker. She saw something in Jay. There was something that was different about Jay. A life that was lived differently. Here's how Paul writes that that should look in the church. Look with me in verses 2 and 3. He says, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another, and, uh, and bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of spirit in the bond of peace. So people who bring unity, people who bring people together, are usually first humble and gentle. Seldom do we find somebody that actually brings people together that's full of themselves or arrogant, right? Would you agree with that? That's the truth. Paul's day when he originally wrote this letter... Um, humility was one of those things that was despised in the, uh, in the Greek and Roman world. Humility was not a virtue to think of. It was likened to a slave-like quality. Not unlike today, honestly. I mean, humility is not something that is a virtuous thing that's taught a lot of in our culture today. People see it as weak. That's not true. That's what the culture is taking us today. What was admired was the strong-souled man men who were competent, men who were self-sufficient, kind of man that Sherman Clump's grandmother was looking for, you know, strong, strapping, young men. That's the kind that was, let's keep going, let's move on. I've done a lot of marriage counseling uh, in my years in pastoring this church and what I've done before, I was teaching young marriages at another church before I became pastor of this church. And a lot of things that I hear from couples kind of kind of boil down to some of the same things over and over again. I ask women lots of times what it is that you're looking for in your husband, what it is you're looking for in the man that you desire to, to spend your time with, to spend your life with. And no matter how many times I ask <clears throat> that question, no matter how many times I ask, or what groups I ask that question, uh, the answers tend to be the same. At the top of their list uh, is like a strange combination of, of words and what women most want from men is three things confidence strength and tenderness all the women said I think tenderness is the critical word here because it's tenderness that kind of puts guardrails on the on the other two somebody who mixes strength with tenderness is a person who will never abuse their strength in the direction of brutality. Women also said they wanted men to have a spirit of confidence, a spirit of tenderness. Someone who is strong and confident in his strength can afford to be tender. There's a tremendous difference between confidence and arrogance. I'll say that again for you men. There's a tremendous difference between confidence and arrogance. Arrogance seeks to humiliate people. Arrogance seeks to belittle people. Arrogance seeks to put yourself above other people. Arrogance seeks to show contempt for other people. It's destructive. It's destructive to a harmony in a marriage. It's destructive to a a group of friends. And so the church follows that same kind of pattern. Church will follow that same type of longing for people with these type of qualities. Any type of relationship, we need those type of virtues in them, particularly in interpersonal relationships within a church. So what Paul says in verse 2, when he says with all humility and gentleness and with patience and bearing one another in love, is to, he says this, it's to be manifested as being worthy of the calling to which we were called. And that excludes, say excludes, it excludes a spirit of arrogance. A spirit of arrogance or brutality which is demeaning toward other people. What should be more natural to Christians than to have a spirit of humility? Paul writes through this book, and really in all of his, all of his letters, he writes about the graciousness the graciousness and the kindness of the Lord in our redemption, and our salvation. It was a kind thing for the Lord to do it. He didn't look at Scott Benjamin and go, look at that guy. That's a winner. That's not what he did out of the miry clay, out of my death, out of my serving sin, he called me. Not because of anything in me. Not because he looked down the corridors of time and saw that I would say yes to him. Not because he thought that I was something else. He just called me because he was gracious and kind and merciful. And the same thing, if you're a Christian, He called you in the very same way, simply by the grace of God. Paul says other places, let him who boasts, what? Boast in the Lord. So it's fitting and true that this is true, that the response to the call of God be rooted and grounded in humility and gentleness. Your response to being part of the household of faith should be, That of gentleness and meekness and humility. Then Paul goes and adds this in verse 2 with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. And so being patient tells us that we're not to be short tempered. You know what it tells us to be? Long tempered. Okay? Don't be short tempered, be long tempered. Actually, the scripture, it's not bad to have a temper. It's not bad to get mad about things. But scripture says, be angry and what? Sin not. It's okay to be angry. It's okay to be passionate. But don't let your passion and your anger boil over into sin. <clears throat> a counselor once made this analogy. I'm going to read this to you. Every human being has in his personality certain minefields made up of minds that are hidden beneath the surface. These are sensitive points when we respond out of uh, proportion to the situation because these are areas wherein we are easily provoked. You may know what I'm talking about. You don't have to raise your hand. In some people's field, there may be only one or two mines for every 10 acres of the field. These people are rather easy to get along with. With other people, there is no safe passageway through their field because it is wall-to-wall mines. They are touchy, sensitive, always getting angry, always getting upset, and always causing problems. So if you're in a group of people, whether you're at work or whether you're at school or whether you're at church or wherever you may be, it only takes one person that's that minefield to disrupt the whole thing. You know what I'm saying, church? Can I get a harumph out of you if you know what I'm saying? Yeah, I didn't get a harumph out of this guy. It can destroy the evening no matter what's going on with somebody that just explodes and blows up the entire thing. And what happens in your marriage when that kind of same thing happens? What happens in your home when that same kind of thing happens? When you're the guy that blows up about everything, you're the guy that your kids are afraid to talk to you about anything because dad's going to blow his top at every turn. Mom's going to lose her mind uh, at every turn. The question is, how do we learn to live in light of the times whenever we disagree with one another? Even if we're called to be followers of Christ, we've got to reflect. We're called to reflect the character of God in our lives. We're called to be people who reflect him. If he fills, if the Spirit of God actually lives within us and fills us, we're called to that to come out of us. We're called for that to be how we respond. <clears throat> Look, God is not without wrath. Scripture says he is what to anger? Slow anger. He doesn't hold grudges. God doesn't let his anger toward things, toward sin, develop into bitterness. Are you slow to anger? Are you slow to anger with your family? Are you slow to anger with your friends? Are you slow to anger with your husband or wife? As his people, as people who are called, that that call ourselves followers of Jesus, we're called to live with that same type of patience that we ask God to display towards us. When we pray the Lord's Prayer, what do we say? We say, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Which is to say, forgive us of our sins as what? We forgive those who sin against us. That's patience and long-suffering and not running to anger. People that sin against us, does it make you angry? It's okay to say yes. Yeah, it, it makes me angry too when people sin against me. But I'm not called to respond out of anger. I'm called to respond differently. Forgiving spirit is characteristic of the Christian life not one that is argumentative or provocative or explosive. Look, every church, every family reunion, every kind of big gathering you go to with the people, you're going to run into people that are like this. This church has people in it that are explosive, less than we used to. But still, People that are explosive, it's inevitable no matter where you go, you're going to run into people who are explosive. They're not gracious in their judgments, not patient, not long suffering. They'll be the opposite of that. They'll be abrasive and rude and insensitive. Those are works of the flesh. You hear me? Those are works of the flesh. Are you living in the flesh? Are you living in the Spirit? Think about your life. Think about your interactions you had this weekend. Think about what it looked like this last week. Are you living in your flesh? Or are you living in the Spirit, the power of the Spirit? Back to verse 2, he says, We do this with all humility and gentleness and with patience, bearing with one another in love. And to bear with one another in love means much more. Do this much more. It means much more than tolerating each other. This is not just putting up with somebody. The truth of verse two, when it relates to Christian unity is this, that we see humility and mildness and patience and love and tolerance of one another. This is having unity in the spirit. We're very different. We see things differently. Our politics might be different, the way we, our jobs may be different. The way we see the world might be different. But in the church of Jesus Christ, we're called to pay, be patient with one another and those around us. But look, and because of that, it calls us to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. See, the unity of the Spirit says that the Holy Spirit is doing something so supernatural within us, so different within us, that we have a fragrance of unity that just comes out from people around us. It, people should look at you and people should look at us in this church today and go, I don't really get them. But it's strange how those people kind of hang out together. They're very different from one another. They're The, the way they uh, act, and the way they react, they're very different from one another. But I love the, the feel and I love the way that they have love and care for one another. The peace that exists between them. I love. People should look at this church and do that. Because it is a witness to who Jesus is. That he's done something different. That he gives us a new way to live. Does it mean there will never be conflict in this church? No. By no means, as Paul would say. But what it does mean is that when we live in unity with one another, when conflict arises, and it will arise, we address it. And if a brother or sister falls out of line... We urge repentance and restoration. This is the way of Christian unity. And Christian unity is one way of displaying the glory of Jesus in our lives. There are great differences between us in the church. But when the spiritual fruits of humility and patience reign over us, there is unity. There's great evidence in that in God's called out people. A unity superglued together by the Spirit. And this points people to Jesus. Let's keep going. Verse 4. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. And so let's see what Paul is writing here. Verse 4. He says, There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. There is one body. So listen, church. There is one church. Okay. There, there is one church of the Lord Jesus. The, I know that our, the church meets in lots of different buildings. Uh, we see lots of different Christian churches all around the country, all around the world uh, that people are meeting, and, and, and there are multiple different expressions of the church. But the reality is, if you have trusted in Jesus, if you have repented of your sins and put your faith in work in the finished work of Jesus, then we are part of one church. Everyone who is filled with the Holy Spirit is part of that church. They may do it differently. They may look differently. They may sing different songs. They may dress differently. They may speak a different language than you or I do, but the reality is they are part of one church, and there is one, not only one church, so we, we are part of the universal church of Jesus Christ. Now, don't miss what I just said, and don't go say that Pastor Scott says that universalism is how all this works, because that's very different, okay? Universalism is not one church universal, okay? Universal says that whatever you believe, that eventually all roads lead to God. That's not what I'm saying, okay? But we are one church universally that that belongs to Jesus, that repent of our sins and believe the gospel. And that's what Paul said. There's one body and there's one spirit, uh, one Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, the active person of the Godhead, the one that calls us into repentance, the one that breathes life into us. He creates and fills and orchestrates, and empowers the body of Christ. And that's you if you're born again. If you're born again, you are filled with the Spirit of God. Every other born-again believer in the world is filled with the Spirit of God. And that goes all the way back to to the people in the beginning. That's the Apostle Paul and and James and Peter. It would include church fathers like Augustine and John Calvin and John Wesley and Spurgeon and D.L. Moody. It would include people in our day that we may be more familiar with, Billy Graham, Adrian Rogers, people like that. They're filled with the Spirit, and we're all one. And if you're filled with the Spirit, just like those stalwarts of the faith, you are part of the body of Christ, amen? Yeah, we are all filled with the same Spirit of God if we're born again. You know what it's like whenever you meet somebody and they go, man, are you a Christian? And you go, yeah, do you, have you ever kind of got that thing? You're like, oh, that's really cool. That, that's really cool. I, I think I told you the story. We had met somebody, uh, uh, Carol and I and uh, Aaron had met somebody after we had had dinner, and uh, they would need some help, and we helped them along the way. And, and, and we had that very same conversation. And I, I said, are you guys Christians? And they said, yeah, we're Christians. And we both just kind of lit up because we're like, hey, my spirit ag- agrees with your spirit. And we shared our story with one another. And we were able to, we helped them along the way. And we didn't help them because they were Christians. It was just one of those cool things that happened. And we're like, that's cool that my spirit agrees with your spirit. That's a neat thing, I think, when that happens. Paul goes on to say in verse 5 that there's one Lord and one faith and one baptism. There's one Lord, church. His name is Jesus. His name is Jesus. Our Christian faith is exclusive. And don't be ashamed of saying that. Look what was written in Acts. That's what it says. There's one, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven, and uh, there is no other name under heaven and given among men by which we must be saved. No other way. There's not multiple roads to heaven, there's not multiple roads to salvation, there is one way. Jesus made the exclusive claim. If you're here and you go, man, there's lots of people, there's lots of ways to heaven, you can't you can't include Jesus in that same group, okay? Because Jesus said, Nope, I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's what he says. Okay? And so if you're here and you go, Well, I, I kind of follow my own way and I kinda follow another way, and they're all gonna end up there anyway, that's not what that's not what Jesus says. Honestly, it's not what any of those others say either. They're all very exclusive. But Jesus said, Jesus is the only one alive today. Amen. If you're reading with us through our New Testament in a year, <clears throat> you'll, do, you'll see, you've seen through Matthew and Mark, that Jesus does things that only God can do, right? If you're not doing that, I would encourage you to do that. We're, we're reading through the New Testament in a year on the Bible app, and if you don't know how to do that, we'll, we'll get you hooked up on that. Ask us uh, after our gathering today. But The whole church is, is trying to read through that together, and so it's just cool to see that, that Jesus does a lot of things that only God can do. And people recognize that, and they come to him and go, help me. Help me here, and people just flocked to him left and right, desiring for him to help them along the way. At his birth, Jesus was called Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. There is one Lord, fully God, fully man, shed his blood on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins, calls you to follow me. Just like he called the disciples in that day. Come, follow me. Jesus calls you today, come, follow me. Not only one Lord and one faith, there's one baptism. The same faith that delivered the apostles is the same gospel that we preach today. The same gospel message that they heard Jesus declare and that they would go on to declare is the same gospel message that we stand from this pulpit regularly and preach week after week begging people and encouraging people to come to follow Jesus, repent, and believe the gospel. What does it mean? It's what we declare every week whenever we observe communion together. See, communion is not just some religious ritual that we go through. It's you remembering and declaring that I trust in the finished work of Jesus, that I trust in the fact that Jesus gave his body and shed his blood on a cross, and I have no hope outside of that for my salvation. That's what you declare every week whenever we observe communion together. It's a tangible expression of the spiritual reality that goes on. His victory over death and hell and the grave. One faith. We see Paul writing it all through. He wrote it to the church at Colossae. He wrote it to the church at Ephesus. He wrote it to the church at Galatia and all through his New Testament writings. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. And look, I know there's lots of places that do baptism in lots of different ways. In Christendom, all throughout Christendom, people baptize people in different ways. It's a visible expression, though, of a spiritual reality. We believe that the Scripture teaches that baptism should follow your conversion. We believe that as as you have repented of your sins and put your faith and trust in the finished work of Jesus, that is something that happens between you and the Lord. Typically, it may be in a private setting. It may be in a public setting. But baptism is your public acknowledgement of that. It's your publicly saying, hey, look at me. I'm following Jesus. I'm not doing my own thing anymore. I'm not following somebody else anymore. I'm following Jesus. And I'm going to die to my old self. That's what it looks like whenever we put somebody under the water. That is, they're dying to their old self, and they're raised to walk as a new creation in Christ Jesus. Baptism doesn't save, okay? Water ain't saved nobody. Only Jesus saves. But this is a picture of what Jesus has done for each of us. If you're here and you need to be baptized, if you've been a Christian and you haven't been baptized since your conversion, we'd love to talk to you about that. We'd love to talk to you about you declaring you publicly that you follow Jesus. Here's my question. Are you a new creation? Question for you. Are you a new creation? The one true faith. I follow Jesus Christ. Believe him, his life, death, and resurrection. Do you follow the one Lord, Jesus, and him alone? you belong to the one church of Jesus Christ, I'm not asking if you belong to refuge, but the one true church of people who are born again through repentance and faith, follow the one true God. If so, rejoice today, church. Your sins are forgiven. You're in right relationship with God. Your life should is one that is filled with the Spirit of God, should be one of joy, even in the worst of circumstances that our lives are filled with joy, our lives are filled with hope, our lives are filled that that this is not all there is, there's more to come. You'll reign with Jesus forever and ever. But if that's not you, if you're not filled with the Spirit, if your heart doesn't leap for joy just a little bit whenever you think about being born again, then maybe you need to be born again today. Maybe you need to repent of your sins and not just gone through some religious rituals that you've done your entire life, but literally repent and believe the gospel today and follow Jesus. Surrender your life to him today. That's what we would want for you. That's what God is calling you to do. That's why we cajole you week after week from this pulpit. That's why we sing gospel-rich songs to put them in your mind so that the Lord and the Spirit will awaken. We pray that he awakens you to the gospel. We tell people all the time with parents about their children, and we do it with you as adults too. We want to pile kindling around you. We just want to keep piling kindling, kindling of the gospel around you, and pray that the Spirit of God will light it up. Maybe he's lighting it up in you today. If he is, today can be your day of salvation. Why should you do this? Because this is what it says in verse 6, because there is one God and Father of all who is over all and through all. And in all. This is complete supremacy. God over everything. He permeates everything about us in our life. Now remember, Paul was writing this to Jewish and Gentile believers in the church and learn, helping them to learn to live with one another. And he says, It is possible for you to live a new way of life, find a new way to live as a follower of His. You have a new way to live? Is the life you live following Jesus? a new way to live. Paul was saying, God will take people from all backgrounds and all nationalities and all religious backgrounds and put them together and make them one. And he's still doing this today. And what I said earlier, there are people that long for a new humanity. Humanity that exhibits peace and love an acceptance of them. No matter what their background might have been. If they see the church living in this way, if people can see us living in a certain way that's countercultural, that's a little bit different from them around, there's some beauty in that. And we hope that that draws people to at least ask the question, what's different here? What makes a difference to you? How do you do that? How do you live with those people? How do you two actually hang out together? Jesus prayed this in John chapter 17, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given to me, I have given to them that they may be one even as you and I are one. In them, and you and me, I in them and you in me that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them as you love me. We as a church begin to live this way. People who are looking for something, anything, to fill this void in their life. To find a people and a unity that they love. First John chapter one says, That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. He calls us to be unified together. here's what I hope for us church and with this I'm going to close one that you understand the imperative and the indicative what Jesus has done for you and then what he calls us to what he calls you to is not what saves you religious activity is not what saves you but the calling for repentance for you to repent and believe the gospel is what he calls us to The fact that he has called you out of darkness, calling you to himself, repentance and faith. And that means that uh, when we repent, he makes us new creations. That's the indicative, what he has done for us. And the imperative is now go and live this way, a new way filled with the spirit. That we live worthy of our calling. Those of us who are Christians, that we literally live worthy of our calling. That whatever years that we have on this earth, that God calls us to something, to live a different way. I pray that we'll do that. That we as a church will walk in unity. That we as a church, that no matter what our differences are, no matter what we may have said or done to one another, that we ask for forgiveness, we offer repentance, and that we walk in unity with one another. That we focus on the thing that's the main thing, and that's Jesus and his saving message of salvation. Grace. Every gift of salvation, that we learn to cultivate a culture of humility and patience and bearing with one another, and lastly, for us in this chaotic world, the world where everybody's against somebody or something, that we learn to be the peacemakers. We learn to be the peacemakers. That we learn to repent of any absence of peace. And we learn to walk in peace with one another in our church, in our neighborhoods, in our work, in our homes. Let us all reverse engineer our deathbed moment by reimagining a new way to live today. Let's pray.